Hello and welcome to the Last Alliance University of Alberta Tolkien Society podcast. Join us as we journey through the Silmarillion, exploring the deepest reaches of Tolkien's history, starting with the first song and ending with the defeat of Sauron's master, the Dark Lord Morgoth. What did you guys think of Turin Turumbai? I want to write a My Immortal style fanfiction. Just this chapter. Yes. Nothing different, but just like, and he calls himself the whatever it was, the bloody son of sorrow, and he had a, a black sword with like glowing edges, and he wore a dwarf mask into battle, and, and Findelos was in love with his manliness, but he was just so emotional that he didn't he didn't even see her there. Like, that is my immortal. He deserves it. Yes. Please. Please do this. It would be so good. I mean, you would just change a bit the writing style, but like the story would be basically be the same anyway. Pretty much, pretty much. Um, what I thought of the thing is, uh, if I were Ulmo, I would just drown everyone because why every time I ask someone to do something, they just do the exact opposite, except this one guy who built Gondolin. Thank you. Because <laughs> like, he specifically said, do not do that, do that. He gave them like a spreadsheet on exactly what to do or not to do, and to just switch the column and did exactly the opposite. Yeah. Wait, which part are you talking about? Hmm? Which part are you talking about? Uh, the part where... Wait, I have to find it again. The part where basically... Um, it's just before the attack on Nargothron. Like, this, like, I don't know if it's a prophecy or a direct message or whatever. Like, But somehow, almost send them the message. Like, barricade this freaking city. Do not go out to fight and shed your pride in the river so it stays safe. They don't barricade the city. They immediately go out to war when the army of the orcs is there. And why? Because Turgon is too proud to do anything else and fight. He had three jobs and you failed right. all of them. Okay, so that's technically like ahead of ourselves. Isn't it? Yeah? I think so. My... Oh no, yes. It's it's because it's on the same double page. Okay, okay. So I, I got carried away. I'm sorry. So oh, no, like, that's totally fine. That's my comment for next week, I guess. <laughs> no, that's alright. Yeah, I think we're ending like shortly before that. Yeah. But I mean like it kinda like is foreshadowed in today's part that we have reading that if you tell Togan not to do something like Tokin not to do something You can be sure he's gonna freaking do it. Yeah, also the bridge. Like, they build the bridge, and everyone's just like, oh, we know that's a bad idea, everyone being the audience. I mean, like, you, you see everything they're doing, you're like, hmm, that's gonna blow up in your face. Yeah, uh, should we be recording? I'm already starting. Oh, okay. I, as soon as you said, like, what do you like about this patch? I was like, click on record. I'm ready. Oh, okay, just because it normally, like, shows up as Oh, uh, yeah, because the boat has been, like, letting us down, we're using a program now. Oh, okay, I see. The boat is a traitor. <laughs> He's been oh. discarded from but the is overworked. Hmm. Okay. 
Um, well, I listened to it in my trend of trying a different medium. Um, this was one of the first things in the Silmarillion that reads well or has it read to you well or I don't know. It just it's, it seemed the most coherent to me listening to it. A lot of the other stuff, sometimes you just kind of goes in one ear, out the other. Um, whereas you like get a lot more out of reading it. That was neat. Um, but mostly Turin, I like the balance of he makes bad decisions, but he's also clearly cursed. There's there's like a some give and take to his situation. If he wasn't cursed, it'd probably be fine. If he made good decisions, it'd probably be fine. Those two things together are a recipe for disaster. Mm, I read it to Tristan, so yeah, and reading it out loud, I definitely noticed that I really liked the language of it in a lot of places. Um, I also think Baron and Luthien reads like that, though, to be honest. Like, I think Baron and Luthien reads well out loud as well. Which, in a way, is interesting and makes sense, because both Baron and Luthien and this version of Turin Turumbar were written after Tolkien already wrote a poem. In Baron and Luthien, it's, I think, rhyming to some extent. Turin Turumbar is an alliterative, or the Narnihin Purin is an alliterative poem. And so both of those is kind of neat because you can see where he was guiding himself based on the poem's lines and incorporates them a little bit. Rhyming couplets for Baron and Luthien, thank you. Sarah, Tristan, it's you guys left. Sorry. Um... <laughs> I'm a little zoned out because I did not do the reading this morning because I woke up and had a meeting with my supervisor and then went grocery shopping and got back a minute before the meeting started. So I'm kind of here and listening. I will chime in when I have thoughts, but I don't know what parts we read and I don't know the particular things I want to talk about right now. All right, interesting. We'll be here in a minute. Um. Hi, uh, Josh. But I just got here. I'm not prepared for anything. I know. I'm sorry, but we're waiting for Tristan for another minute. So we're at the end of the round, and uh, you arrived right at the point when I was going to try and fill time. So, uh, Josh, what did Tristan, you think about this part? This. He's doing chores. He's being responsible. If anything is prepared, I just read this last night. Um, no, I, I definitely don't have anything prepared for this. I'm a bad oh. person. Okay. Um... I think my biggest thought with this was just a mental comparison between Turin Turinbar and Alcibiades. That. Oh no. Yeah. You see it, Joshua. You see it. Um, they're both troubled characters, we'll go with that, who. Um, seem to just be able to convince everyone around them to do what they want 
with, I want to say, disastrous outcomes. So, you know. And are both really gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, the, the historical comparison is was startling to me, but it was also very appropriate. That's what brought it up, actually, was, like, talking about how Turin is apparently really beautiful. Tristan was like, oh, reminds me of this um, other man who made terrible military decisions, but everyone listened to him because he was beautiful. Before we dive into specifics, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be one of the specifics, uh, on, like, because like my rant was for next week, so I'll have to repeat it next week. Uh, but like on specific on this part, um, Beleg is the best, and he does not deserve any. Like he Turin does not deserve Beleg. Barely anyone deserves Beleg, except maybe Melian, who's like basically as ignored as he is, uh, <laughs> but in different ways. Um, yeah, that's all I have to say. Fair. Let's talk about Beleg. Beleg is uh, Beleg is yet another example on my list of like Tolkien gay narratives that are gay, like partly because of how the characters act and partly because of how the narrative like parallels it with explicitly romantic straight relationships. So. Um, I was reading this and like, like I'm used to people shipping Turin and Beleg. To be honest, I'd completely forgotten about the canon basis for it, other than the fact that lots of people in Tolkien say that they love they love each other. Um, but then I was reading this this time, and I kind of noticed that like, Beleg, um, there, there's some Baron and Luthien parallels, like just a little bit, like with. Beleg being like th single, I would like your permission to pursue your son. Metaphor, or not, sorry, literally, not metaphorically, but also maybe metaphorically because I love him. Yeah, but it feels like, unlike in Beren and Luthien, it's not reciprocal and this Luthien is an asshole. Also cursed, so like, as we said, like, it's like bad decision. So partially bad decision, partially cursed, but like, still. A bit, bit self-centered. I get a strong impression that Turin is leaving behind a, um, Turin is leaving behind a string of brokenhearted and also dead elves. If he in doesn't kill them himself. Out. Yeah, in order to, as we'll find out later, marry his sister. But yeah, there's there's Beleg who loves him. And then there's uh like there's Gwyndor, and like <laughs> Tristan points out that when Gwyndor is talking to Findulus about like human elf relationships, one of the things he's he says is like humans will pass on and leave us widowed, not like leave you widowed. <laughs> um and then there's Findulas herself. 
I mean, the good point about Turin is that you don't get widowed if you're nerf loving him because you just die before he does. Yeah, which is so rough. Like, <laughs> he's gonna die before us, Findulas. No, no, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. And in certain case, he's gonna make sure you don't die after him because he's gonna kill you himself, Bellic. <laughs> I think the Beleg thing is a good example of uh, what Rob said about like the curse, like it being really clear that he's cursed. And in this case, it's not even Truin's decision that's involved, it's Beleg's, right? So a slightly better decision on Beleg's part would have been to wake Turin up before he's before he unshackles him, right? Like have him conscious for that. That would have been the slightly better decision. But I think it's like pretty understandable that that wouldn't occur to him in that scenario and that Turin killing Beleg is in this narrative really not Turin's fault in my opinion like having a PTSD reaction where you wake up violently is like not anyone's fault and that's exactly what happens to him um he literally can't see in the dark because he's a person and like thinks he's being attacked like none of this is Turin's fault yeah no yet. that makes sense <laughs> like my my formulation for those who are just only listening and who might have not done the reading is like misleading but it's true it's an accident it's a tragic accident and he did not make sure to kill Beleg he just killed <laughs> Beleg by accident uh, I absolutely agree with that reading and it's not like me trying to reformulate how it happened it's sad Yeah, I also want to bring up that Beleg made the questionable decision to bring along a cursed sword that he was told was cursed. <laughs> I don't know why. Nobody <laughs> listens to Melian. Nobody listens to Melian. Yeah. I, I feel like the story of Turin Tirumbawa is a like background very powerful character who tells stuff like, hey, you probably shouldn't do that, or hey, you probably should do that. And everyone ignores them even though they have like the like the wise wisdom of the world and you're like why like the wisdom of the world just talked to you why ignore it because screw you i'll make my own way in the world but but notably unlike thingle and turin and morwen later we'll see beleg isn't characterized as having a pride issue like, Beleg isn't characterized as having that sort of, like, screw you, I'm not listening to your advice sort of attitude, like, ever. Beleg is, like, a really strong warrior, but also, personality-wise, quite a gentle person. That's um, fair. I think that's just the general reason. Ah, uh, fair enough. Also, um, when somebody mentioned the parallels between Turin and Baron or like the stories, uh, that reminded me of a thought that I did have, is that every time I read this, I'm always surprised by how close in time the two stories happen. Because like, Baron and Turin are alive at the same time. Baron was friends with Turin's father. Yeah, I forget that detail every single time, and it's wild to me. 
But just yeah. timeline wise, if it was like before bad stuff happened, it was like when Hurin was a kid. So like Hurin and Baron were like childhood friends, apparently, which is yeah. With how spaced out and how how long term everything in the Silmarillion is, it's crazy to me that these two major stories happen so close and like, and there's still this giant battle in between them somehow. Also, there's gonna be another one. Literally, like you know how the three great stories that all have their own books are the Children of Hurin, Baron, and Luthien, and the Fall of Gondolin. Mm -hmm. Tuor is like Turin's age. So literally, the three yeah. biggest stories over like thousands and thousands of years all happen within the span of like twenty years. You literally watch them cross paths. Yes. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah. It's not barren, really, other than just the effect it has on Thingol, but you watch Turin and Tuor cross paths. Yeah. It's it's a bit like uh, when you like study history and then suddenly you realize that three major like historical characters just casually lived at the same time and you're like, oh my god, the world must have been intense at those times because you had like those badass at three part of the one, two part of the world who were just like, hey. Anyway, or like historical figures who casually were friends and you didn't know about that before. Like it, it, like the ma main example that strikes me is like learning that Edward the Eighth lived at the same time as Charles the Fifth of Spain, which who owned half of the world, and like, and I'm like. And and in France you have like the you have uh, Francis the first who is also a big king in France and they're like wait I understand why the ten like the situation was kind of tense in Europe at the time you had like three big egos playing around but that's um, moving away from Turin. I just wanted to check because I thought I remembered reading something hearing something about this. Uh, by some weird stroke of fate, Turin was born in the same year that Baron met Luthien. Uh, yep. Um, it's uh, the second... Okay, so this is great, because this takes us back to the beginning, which I wanted to talk about, too. So, the beginning builds this super explicit parallel, because you have these two short paragraphs that are almost exactly the same length. And the first one starts with Rian, daughter of Belagund, was the wife of Huar. And the second one starts, Morwen, daughter of Beragund, was the wife of Hurin. Um, and Rian is, you know, it talks about Tuor. So you have, you have Rian and Tuor and Huar, so you have that branch of the family. And then you immediately go to Morwen, Hurin, Turin, and Lalife. And this is where you get the information uh, that Morwen and Hurin's son Turin was born in the year that Baron Erkamian came upon Luthien in the forest of Meldoreth. What do you think that means? That Baron and Luthien took all the luck possible in that year and, and Turin got all the bad luck that was left over. <laughs> that was pretty funny. I think it means that whoever was 
running fate or destiny at this point in time realized that they had a bunch of deadlines coming up and fit everything into the last minute yeah like we do get um sort of the elf human relationship parallel um and like I guess Turin could have been more like Tuor if he'd made better decisions and maybe hadn't been cursed. Um, and it's just it's just interesting how they're mirrored like that. Um, and we get like a similar mirroring between Nargothrond and Gondor um, and Turgon and Finrod. Just a lot of interesting interesting parallels to contrast their uh, the situations. And decisions. Oh man, do we, do we get into a nature versus nurture argument with who, with which band of elves helped raise these people? Gala? Um, oh, I was gonna say that it shows it, it's um, with the parallel, it also highlights. Because, um, especially with Baron and Luthien, that goes so well, just in general, for kind of them. And this, and kind of also Gondolin are more the showing that human-elf relationships are not always so congenial and kind of like work out well for everyone involved. Which serves to make Baron and Luthien, again, kind of that much more of a special case. I have two comments, and the first one is that, uh, with regards to what Josh was saying, you know how sometimes you'll start writing like a line of text, like doing fancy lettering, and then you'll realize that you misjudged how much space you needed, so the letters are getting like smaller and smaller and closer and closer together as you like reach the end of the paper. Um, I'm picturing Vire having that problem with her tapestry. <laughs> She's like getting closer and closer to the end of like this particular hallway or whatever. And so like all the events are getting like smushed. Um, and my second comment is that you've, you guys have kind of already been saying this, but um, yeah, there's the implication in this chapter in the beginning and later that Turin maybe could have been another Baron. Um, and even in the way people treat him, it's sometimes like the world now knows the precedent of Baron. So when people hear about Turin, son of Hurin, um, there's this parallel between like who his father was and how his father died or was captured defending elves and was this big hero. So when the world's already had Baron, son of Bear here, they're they're honestly also perhaps seeing Turin, son of Hurin, as another potential baron. I think also about like all the events being smushed. Uh, I think it's just because we focus on humans now and not elves. Because like honestly, like all the characters we've talked about until now, like their life of clearly overlap because it's just, it's just so freaking long that it's just obviously they will overlap like uh 
except if like i don't know like a, a, a one mother give like die in childbirth but that's basically like the only time when it wouldn't happen um and but here like it's the same like the big characters happen but like it's how to say that like even when you look at history in our world like uh big and crucial event happened not because there's like one guy it's because there's one guy versus other big guys who like create attention and like yes Morgoth is always a big guy and like that's a constant but then you focus on like the big guys in human life like they don't have time to just idle for 200 years because like mean that the grandson will fight Morgoth you know so like that's also maybe why it's just like speed up because it's just like not an elvish measure of time anymore it's a human measure of time and it's just generation that are like sort of at the same time too and inspire each other to do whatever they do so it looks smushier because we went from like the Vala who just are like eternal to the elf who are basically eternal unless you like kill them uh until the end of the world and then two humans who are like well i'm on a timer so <laughs> i don't have time to like sit around i wonder if that was deliberate too like to go with the lord of the rings like as you pointed out the silmarillion moves from valar to elves to humans and then lord of the rings moves to hobbits so you're getting your focus is getting smaller literally i think i don't know if it was conscious decision on tolkien's part i think it's like an interesting pattern to see um i think also like uh, I, I remember when we were talking about Lord of the Ring, you were mentioning that one of the big theme overall of Tolkien's work is like life and death and like looking at that and like um, what I see with the Valar and the Elf is like basically what stays, what like remains, what doesn't change, well doesn't change-ish because like obviously the, like the, the character change a little bit but like it's relatively stable and versus what kind of constantly and quickly changes which are like humans life um why it's like very fragile but also very still important for like the narrative the overall narrative and like if you parallel that to like a world where there's no elves and humans are like some of some but not the only like long-lived species like that also encourage you to like look at what is short-lived around you but still important and vice versa it can also make you realize that you're actually quite a short-lived species if you look at like i don't know like cedar trees that are like live for thousands of years and stuff and how the kind of the elves of this world 
and I don't know if like Tolkien wanted to make a parallel with our, uh, our world in that way, but that's definitely a thing you can like consider and apply to your life. You use the word apply, which is great because Tolkien is always arguing that he doesn't want his work to be read through the lens of allegory. He wants it to be read through the lens of applicability to real life. Does anyone else have any thoughts? Okay, well, if you do, just let me know. Um, but for now, let's talk about Turin's childhood. It's only like a page, but I think it's a very interesting page. So, so tell me about Turin's childhood. The just absolute cursedness of it, right from the very beginning. Okay, this so in, like, in what sense? His sister, unless I'm forgetting, his sister dies. Mm -hmm. His father goes off to war and is captured. And his mom's like, can't support this kid. You have to go live with this new guy. He's going to be really nice to you, but you have to leave um, and live with this elf king who is just completely distant <laughs> as a person. Uh, I think that last part is the only thing there isn't textual evidence for because there's no reason to believe that Thingol was distant because no. it's said that he, he was actually a loving father. Yeah, Thingol, Thingol's a good dad, but Thingol is distant from you in experience, right? Like, you're not living with your own people who know what it's like to be a human whose people are all dying really frequently. You're living with Thingol who's been in his protected forest, not having his people die on the regular. So, you know, you're, you're distant, distant from your people, from people who are sharing your own experience of life. Yeah. And the thing about his sister dying, like, he takes that really hard. He's like, he, I think he really does kind of take that as like the start of his cursed existence. Uh, you're probably thinking of Children of Hurin, because in this version of the text, like, that's basically purely conjecture, but... Okay. but yeah, this is what happens when I don't read it, and I'm like, this is what I know about Turin. I mean, um, and it's that she's really sad about the death of his sister. I mean, it's not expanded that he's really sad, but it's supposed because she was beloved by Turin. And also, like, she's called Laughter, so she must have been, like, such a bright little child. And so, like, okay, <laughs> this is a terrible pen, but I have to make it. Uh, it's basically how Laughter died in his life. Uh, because, <laughs> okay. yeah, like, it's just, yeah, he lost his sister, and after that, his life just goes to shit. And he's not laughing. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I feel like... And, and we we can talk about it later when we approach the text. I feel like he's also self prophesizing his curse in a way. Like, uh, I don't know if it's in, in this passage or in the next, 
uh, in, in next week's passage, but like he basically doesn't want to use his name because he thinks that's what the curse is on. And I'm like, if you think you're cursed, you're gonna act like you're cursed. He's, he's doomed himself to his curse. And that's another thing about, like, it's not appearing yet in his childhood, even though he has a shitty childhood. Um, but I think that's an, an aspect of his character. He's, he's resigning himself to his curse, whether or not he has one. And he probably has one, yes, but he's not trying to go against it, trying to do better despite the curse he's just like oh i'm cursed shit you soon has gonna happen to me and i'm like yeah why is that that is it obviously you know um but yeah and i think it starts pretty early on rob did you want to make a point um no i don't think so i mean at least I don't remember what I was going to say. Um, there's all that stuff with the like the Easterlings coming in too. So there's sort of um, like there's a good reason to try to smuggle Turin away from, uh, from where they live. I'm not entirely sure why his mother didn't go with him. Maybe because she was pregnant, like very pregnant because before they even get back to Doria she gives birth again so I don't know if maybe that had something to do with it but it's not explained very well in the song really and I think other versions have like have that more flushed out but... yeah there's definitely a lot more detail in the children of Huron and I think the only indication you get here of that thread of Morwen's like like reluctance is um Thereafter, messengers went north to Hithlum, bidding Morwen leave, and this is after her child was born, right? Bidding Morwen leave Dorloman and return with him to Doriath, but still she would not leave the house in which she had dwelt with Hurin. At least we and know I... where Turin get his turbanness. Yeah, oh, oh yeah. I mean, consider even that it says that he's his mother's son in looks. Like, he is his mother's son in temperament as well. Um, which makes talking about Morwen at the beginning really interesting, too. Um, because I think we get, like, inklings. Well, actually, the information we get about Morwen is very... Okay, it's not like Hurin isn't stubborn, but, but we're talking about pride. We're talking about a different kind of pride as manifested in different members of this family. Um, yeah, so this bit that we get about Morwen. Um, but so great was the beauty and majesty of the Lady of Dorloman that the Easterlings were afraid and dared not to lay hands upon her or her household, and they whispered among themselves, saying that she was perilous and a witch skilled in magic and in league with the elves. Yet she was poor and without aid, save that she was succored secretly by a kinswoman of Hurin named Iron whom Brada and Easterling had taken as his wife. And, and Morwen feared greatly that Turin would be taken from her and enslaved. Um, it, etc., etc. Um, in the beginning of the year, Morwen gave birth to her child, the daughter of Hurin. 
and she named her Neonor, which is mourning. And then there's the detail about her wanting to stay in Hurin's house. So one thing that I don't know if other people were thinking about, but Rian gets closure. Rian gets the news that, you know, Huor died, pierced by a poisoned arrow to the eye or whatever, and his body is on this mound. Um, and so she's able to make her decisions, which are leave her son to the elves, uh, seems to be a, a running theme, um, and then go die. Which, you know, we can, we can talk about that in Tuor's story, because I don't love it, but it comes up more relevant there. Uh, Morwen, on the other hand, doesn't know what happened to her in. Like, she doesn't have that same closure of knowing he's dead, because she knows he was captured. And no news really comes out of Angband. No news comes out of Angband at all, actually, until Turin talks to Gwyndor about Turin. So I don't know if other people were thinking about this, but I read that... I, I read the being unwilling to leave her house as very similar to Gorlam, always returning to his house where he lived with Ilanel at the beginning of Baron and Luthien because she was captured, but he doesn't know for certain that she's dead, so there's always that hope that he might come back. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, it's like the one point that they have in common, that they know the, like, the, like that's the last place they've seen each other, basically, or roughly, uh, that they come on rejoiner, and if she lives to, like, Thingol's halls, which she eventually does, like, it's like she could leave a note, but that also would mean everyone knows where she is if they find the note, and Herman might not find the note. Um, that uh, and then that would also mean that if she leaves and he comes back when she's gone, he she gives him the same feelings of where's my family, where's my where are my loved ones, and and knowing their fate like he could ask but like there's so much like uh erin erin could know like she could tell him if she survived by the time he comes back if he comes back she could tell him yeah like she left there but did she arrive no idea uh is she fine no idea i just know she left there and then like that's another like chase of people around the world versus like if she doesn't move like it's easier to find her also okay here's another question what do you guys think of the two daughters um what's going on there beyond the fact that laughter dies because, yeah, that's absolutely... Like, Eloise, I don't know why you're apologizing for your pun when, like, that's literally the... The text invites you to make it. The text is literally telling you that laughter died. Yeah, everything's kind of sad now. Um, I think the two daughters reflect a lot about uh, how Morwen's feeling when they're born. Um, when 
uh, Lalef is born, she's like hopeful that she'll have a great family with her lovely husband and her great son and her great daughter and it's going to be great. Uh, she has like the picket fence and everything. Um, and when Nino is born, she's born without a father, without a brother, uh, without the people. <laughs> uh, she, you know, like, she, like, I mean, I would find questionable to call your child mourning because rude. Like, it's not the child's fault if you're feeling like shit. But uh, it's a narrative instrument to say, yeah, like, um, I'm sad. <laughs> and, and she's mourning so much. Like, she's not only mourning, not like, she's not only mourning, like, her dream of a great life with her family. She's mourning this family together she's mourning the husband she lost because he's not coming back and even if he comes back he's not probably going to be the same lovely loving man as before as like torture would do to you um uh if uh her son has to go because for, for safety uh she was a lady but is just in pride she's a lady now because like there's like the people she ruled have been in colonized and invaded and like intermarried um like she's mourning so much like it makes sense that she wants to express that oh my god uh, she makes sense. She wants to express that. Yeah, he like he usually succeeds, but recently he's been failing because he's an idiot. Um, for those in the podcast, my cat tried to jump on my chair. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So like, then clung on for dear life, and then fell. Yes, because he's an idiot. He usually succeeds, but now he's been failing. Um, yeah. So that was laughter for you. Uh, now back to the story, which is mourning. Um, yeah, I would, basically to summarize, uh, it. I feel like the name of the daughters represent more like narratives about Morwen than they actually would be actual names that Morwen would give her daughter. Maybe Lalis, but would she really, really, really call her daughter mourning? I mean, like maybe, like it's Morwen, you never know, but still. It feels also like it could also be a a bit like when we talked about like those guys that are like in the narrative called like ugly traitor and stuff. It could also be a narrative instrument from the from from whoever wrote the original Silmarillion in the Tolkien meta narrative um, that is like oh yeah that was a sad daughter to have because it was a freaking freaking bad situation. And also it kind of like tells you Nino is not going to have a good life either. I think there's also something to be said for the idea that the daughter's name is somewhat pathetic. Um, that Lalith is the happy one because she dies before everything goes terribly, horribly wrong. And that uh, Nino, well, gonna see how that goes but it's not gonna end well yeah there's this terrible irony of 
Lalith maybe being the only lucky one of the family just because she dies before she can suffer. Well, that's cheerful. Particularly considering she died of illness, so she probably didn't die quietly and peacefully and nicely. Yeah. Josh, did you want to make a point? No, I'm, I was just saying that that is some, somewhat distressing, but probably not wrong. You happy now? Well, okay, yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think I disagree with Eloise's point about these names being parallel to names like Ulworth and Ulfang. Um, due to a combination of what the names are and what the narrative specifically says about it. So there's this, uh, yeah. So first, first of all, like the fact that they have two names rather than just one name that feels like an epithet makes me think that maybe these are their real names. So Hurin is called Hurin Thalian and Thalian is the epithet meaning steadfast. Um, Morwen is called Morwen Elithwen, which is translated as like Morwen, like elf sheen. So basically like as beautiful as elves. Um, and <laughs> you get the same later with Turin Turumbar and Nienor Niniel. Uh, there's one thing that like the language here is really specific in a way that doesn't quite make sense unless you've read other versions of the story and have the full context. And it's the difference between Morwen gave birth to her child, the daughter of Hurin, and she named her Nianor versus a daughter they had also who was called Lalith, which is laughter. Um, you find out in other versions of the story that Lalith is a nickname um, they named their daughter Urwen, which is this, like, the Ur at the beginning is the same as the Hur in Hurin's name, uh, and it means flame. Um, so the distinction between her, where they're talking about what she's called, versus Neonor, when they very specifically say, like, that she was named. Okay, mm. that makes sense. Um, the also, other question I, I want to ask also i realized i know it's like in the passage uh for next week but like it's engraved that she's called nino like she's named nino so i think it's probably like a, a landmark you can come back to and be like oh yeah it's actually wrote nino so like rude morwen that's not that's if you wanted to curse your child here you are <laughs> okay i have another question for you related to this all of you um which is in that sentence i just read morwen gave birth to her child the daughter of hurin and she named her neonor which is mourning we know she's the daughter of hurin why do we need to hear it again because he's not here when she's born and she's probably been conceived just before he left so it's like maybe some people question that uh maybe no one questioned it because she would not have let any other man touch her but like uh it's the idea is like yeah the child of a guy who's gone to war 
Hmm. Uh, but considering it's more when she probably like just stared down any man who like were like less than 15 feet away from her. Uh, so like the likeliness that any other man than her and his her father is very, very, very impossible. See, I think that it has more to do with the fact that we've recently had Turin described as the child of Morwen, in that he is like to Morwen in temperament and appearance. And in the same way, we will, I believe, as this story progresses, learn that Neonor is more like to her than to her mother in temperament and appearances. Also, it's just nice to be reminded very, very frequently um, that they're children of Hurin and therefore cursed. <laughs> like it tells you, so this is specifically, she's the daughter of Hurin and therefore remember, pay attention, children of Hurin are cursed. And so she's cursed as she's born. Yeah, I think you're all correct. Um, I'm very pleased with the range of answers. It emphasizes Hurin's absence at her birth. It uh, characterizes her as a child of Hurin in opposition to Turin, a child of Morwen. And it invokes the curse upon her head as she's being born. Um, the, uh, the, the child of Hurin thing is something that I wanted to pick up on a little bit because, uh, again, we don't have this in this text, but Lalife is blonde and like named after Hurin. Like her real name is Orwin. She's named after him. And then Neonor is also blonde and brought up as being like the child of Hurin. So on the one hand, this definitely reflects Morwen's relationship to Hurin, where in the second case, she's mourning him. Um, but the split between this family based on the parents is going to continue to be really interesting in this story. Um, like, you can kind of track whether Turin is being referred to as son of Hurin or son of Morwen. It's Son of Morwen more often, I think. Well, maybe that's in the novel. But you can track, like, which parent he's being tied to in order to, like, be told something about him as a character, uh, which is, I think, interesting. Um, and it also creates, like, a split between the family with, like, Hurin and the daughters on one side and Morwen and Turin on the other side. Uh, I'm going to go find my Kulervo, but uh, I would highly encourage y'all to talk about Thingol and Cyros while I go do that. I imagine someone will have thoughts. And if not, I, I, I'll put Tristan on the spot. Oh, yeah. I have to go to class, but, you know, uh, Book of Lost Tales plug. If you want to see the kind of damage a cup can really do, um, come join us in Book of Lost Tales. And, uh... Yep. yep. Isn't that the one where it's the cup that actually kills him? Like, splits Yeah, he just, head? like, tosses a cup at this guy because he's being rude, and it just 
cracks his head open. Because I guess he's a tiny elf. We're back to tiny elves. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, he's got a weak elf skull in that version. <laughs> like, that's also the version where the, that's also the version where, like, the reason that Gwyndor and Beleg can't carry Turin that far is because each of them is, like, half his size. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also the version where it's all curse. I don't think there are any bad decisions. It's just like, <laughs> what, what's a, how, who's going to predict that a cup is going to crack somebody's skull open? That's ludicrous. <laughs> back when, back when the diminishing of the elves was literal and <laughs> height <laughs> related. Yep. Elves used to be human size and then they got down to Tinkerbells. <laughs> Bye everybody. Just how that works. So Cyros is, I find interesting because he's one of the few um, green elves that we actually see with, I'm going to say something approaching a personality. Um, I'm not saying he has a personality, but you don't get much closer. So, you know, it's a good start. Um, and he's, well, terrible, which is kind of a shame, because I, I want more green elf representation, and, and this is what we get. We get Cyros, who is known for being a dick and then being a bigger dick. Also, why does Thingle listen to this man? Like, I have to assume that either he has intense family privilege or some sort of great insight because, yeah. Not that he I has know. good insight. It's that Thingle only listens to people with bad insight. I mean, Thingle repetitively. Why does Melian let him listen to? Because Thingol doesn't listen to Melian, so like, one thing she doesn't do is fault her husband into like whatever he would be doing, and maybe Silas was just in a bad mood this day because like, Melian had been mean to him and was like, "Hey, you're terrible and the worst. Maybe you should stop hanging out with my husband." Maybe Melian feels guilty for stopping time for a few thousand years. He's decided never to force her hand on anything again. <laughs> Hashtag very dumb takes. I mean, you could argue that it's a spectacular critique of wife should obey husband, because it's like, wife obeys husband, and husband is incapable of making his own decisions. If it was reversed, things would have gone fine. Um, also, like, okay, I want to go on the comments Saros does, because, like, it trans, like, it gives a lot of hindsight on, like, what is the cultural expectation on women and men? Like, um, he does not, that, like, he gave the shorthand comment on Turin, calling the men of Hilflem wide and fell, but 
the thing that pisses off Turin, I think, is what he says about women. Um, what sort of women of that as a, what sort other women of that land do they run like deer clad only in their hair? Like it's partially in this situation, it could be partially that um, Turin gets angry because like the only people who are left in Hislam who he cares very clearly about are his mother and sister, who are women. And then that it's like, you can insult me, but you cannot insult my family kind of reaction. But was that Sarah's intention to insult Moren on Nino? Or was it an intention to insult a man's honor, quotation mark, by attacking the uh, dignity of their women because like if Seros wanted to insult Nieno and Morwen he would have gone with a more direct insult on Nieno or Morwen he is just saying the men of Islam and their women so is that reflective on Elvish society where like if you want to insult the people you insult their women because they the guardian of the honor of these people, or is it reflective of the elvish vision of human society where you have to insult the women to insult the men? I don't know if that makes sense. And the fact that Turin reacts is that is that he felt personally insulted because there's an insinuation that his mother and sister have no dignity, or is that a reaction because the women have been insulted, and so our honor has been touched. So, I don't know how Turin is taking this, but to speak to the, I think, second of those two options a bit more, um, I've done probably more extensive reading on the rules around dueling than I should have. Um, and it's led to some interesting uh, discussions about chivalric and post-chivalric honor regarding degrees of insult. Um, and one of the basic tenets is that to insult a woman under your protection, under, or if someone insults a woman under your protection, it is one degree of insult more than if they basically said the same thing to you. So what you're left with is the, I guess, post-chivalric idea that um, elevates women in that sense and makes insults against them so much more uh, insulting, effectively. I think that's also maybe like a, um, like the like I think that the reasoning behind that is that like women can't defend themselves, right? Like. Because if it's like an insult against you, you can you personally can decide, like have the authority to decide whether you're going to let it slide or whether you're going to address it. But women are not allowed to make that decision themselves. Therefore, you have to always assume that you have to be defending them. Does that make sense? 
I, I think I understand what you're saying, but that's not the point that I was making, and I don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't know how that stands in like a dueling culture, which I don't even know if that applies here. But... I think what I see in what you're saying is that like, um, it could be a combination of several things, and like one of the things that I've seen we haven't talked about is um, if you insult a person under someone's protection, you insult them because they're bad protectors. Also, like, but there's also maybe the assumption that of course women needs protectors because, as Sophia said, maybe like women can't defend themselves, um, and in this case with Cyrus and. Turin, like Nienor and like the women of Islam and Morwen can't literally cannot defend themselves because they're like a continent away. Uh, <laughs> so you know, it's like, hey, dude, like the only person of Islam, Islam who can defend the Islamian is Turin. And that's also probably why he's like giving a concussion to Sarah's through cup throwing or something. I guess it is a interesting notion here that like like I, I I don't know. I guess I feel both like I can see Turin as as trying to be chivalric um and you know defending his uh family and it, you know and his mother and uh, I guess sisters that he believes are either dead or non-existent um uh but yeah i i mean i i almost want to give a generous reading to him that he's like that he, you know right like the the men comment is very pointed at turin himself right it's like oh if all men are like you then you're like this then but the the women comment is baseless and yes attacking a population who was not a pr present and accounted for and so you know they have they have no defense if turn doesn't give it um but it's like there's a certain amount of you know i can i can defend honor on behalf of somebody who's not there but i can't forgive on behalf of people who aren't there um but I'm also uncertain of whether or not it would be interns, um, like, if this only applies to women, or if it's a, you know, if he would do it for other populations he felt were, uh, you know, neglected or, uh, yeah, less accounted for. I mean, if it's, if it's specifically a woman issue or not, I'm, I'm, I'm uncertain, I'm... I'd be happy to find, you know, take it either way, but I, there's definitely a, I could definitely see the woman just on precedent I mean, of, like, like, medieval codes. Yeah, like, what I mean by, like, raising an, and I, like, a discussion about this comment is, like, it's actually more, like, about, it's not about, like, whether, like, Turin is, or, like, a sexist by guy or stuff, it's, like, he's a product of a culture, and he's actually a product of two cultures because he's also been raised by the elves. So like, even if he did not agree with the character, because for some, like, I don't know if the Islamian culture differs from the elvish culture, like, like, 
everyone can defend themselves and you don't have like a paternalistic protection over women like even if he he didn't think that way he would still have to react in this situation because it's in front of the king it's he's the only representative of Islam if he just lets this insults pass he's just basically giving like a pass to literally everyone to say like hey human of Islam is just garbage wild be beast and he can't do that whether or not he uh, is uh, really offended like I think he's kind of really offended by the the thing the, the insult because it's a very wide insult and very things that are very personal to him um like it also like i think like what i was trying to get to the conversation around is like more more than what does it say about the character making or responding to this comment is like what does it say about the cultures in which they evolve um and like that also brings me to a second thing about that what this comment says this comment says uh does this categorizing of civilizations it's like um if you live in the wild you are less civilized you are less deserving of respect it's more insulting to be living in the wild than it is to live in like in the city or a beautiful castle or whatever uh, and yeah i don't know where that comes from like i mean like i kind of get where that comes from but i also don't know where that comes from because I don't know. I don't know if I make sense, but like, it wouldn't make sense to me that a Nordor say that. But it, because like they are like very magical in your mindset, uh, it would make sense that a Numenorean say that, even though I haven't read a Numenorean yet. But like I know they colonizers. Um, it's very much a colonizer's mindset of like, we have the culture. Those who live in, in the wild don't. Um, and that's why we're better than them. Um, I don't know where that comes from. And like, yeah, this is probably answers, like, because I, I have very limited knowledge of the extended things. Sarah, yeah, go. Yeah, um, it like, it sure is not only a sexist joke, but also a racist one. Um, <laughs> And, like, controversial opinion, maybe, but the person who should be primarily responsible for shutting this down is Thingle. Um, like, possibly that should be a thing that he does, considering that, like, like, Turin, he's taken Turin in as a member of his household, um, and as one of his own. Um, and he's also been, you know, the one going back and continuously inviting Morwen to come stay with him until, like, his messengers didn't come back. He's the one where we're explicitly told, I just checked, that his attitude personally has shifted, right? His attitude has shifted and he's the king, which means that his, the attitude of his court should be shifting with him, right? Um, so the responsibility that he, that should be taken to be like, don't just, like, stand around slandering, like, one of my household, who is your, um, brother-in-arms, and, like, all of the women of this people, like, Thingle should be on this, um, but also controversial opinion, is it kind of, like, it's not great, it's not good that Cyrus dies, but, like, you know, 
people who stand around making sexist and racist jokes and then, you know, go to assault you when you're going about your business the next day should, in fact, live in fear of being stripped naked and made to run through the woods. Like, maybe they should, you know? Um, I, I agree that Pingolsh is the one with responsibility to shut that down. And so that contradict, contradicts what I said about Turin probably being the only one able to respond. But uh, I feel that in this situation, he didn't have time to respond. <laughs> I feel it was like Soros insulted and suddenly he had a cup in his face and I was like, hey, everyone calm down. <laughs> uh, I think that like um, basically what happened, like I don't, I don't, I'm going to give Thingol the benefit of the doubt on this one, but uh, I agree he was the one probably with the most responsibility because like both Soros and Turin are under his authority or protection and um, and by adopting Turin even though Seros is super like bitter about that he should still treat Turin as at least an equal if not a superior because he's part of the royal family now suck it up <laughs> you basically insulted the prince so like yes you deserve a cup in the face and if you assault the prince yes you deserve to like be run like sent to run naked in the wood if you fell by accident because you can't run naked in the wood properly uh, <laughs> i don't know if that's a thing that sounds a bit like victim blaming borderline but yeah um not saying he had it coming but um he could have taken personal steps to avoid this personal, like this particular encounter. Like, not start the encounter, for example. I would like to propose a post-colonial reading of the character of Cyros. Okay, bear with me. <laughs> so, Eloise, like... This is entirely based on your comments. I wasn't thinking about Cyrus in this light before but um okay so the fact that the text goes out of its way to point out that Cyrus is a green elf initially just seems weird and kind of racist like oh he's a green elf that's why he's like that but consider the very fact that he's of the people that are typically having those rude comments made about them is, I think, why he defaults to that rude comment. So, like, the the way the Noldor see, the, the way the Noldor and possibly the Sindar, like, that part is less clear, but definitely the way that the Noldor see the Green Elves is as kind of those backward primitives who live in the woods and don't have civilization. Um, which... <laughs> is very definitely a colonial mindset. And when you're looking at um, Cyros as a colonial subject, um, <laughs> the literally unenlightened, the, the literally unenlightened, it's about light in the tree. Yeah, it's a lot. Anyway, um, <laughs> thanks, Justin. Uh, but when you're looking at um, Cyros, through that lens. Um, I'm thinking about 
all of the people I've had to read lately, like France Fanon, um, and even like Edward Said uh, and Chinua Achebe, who talk about how sometimes when you are the colonized subject, you identify with the colonizers because the portrayal of the colonizers you see is like they're intelligent and they're rational and they're not, you know, stupid. Um, and sometimes you get to a point where you are actually upholding the colonial ideology more fervently than the colonizers themselves. Yeah, it's, it's kind of internalized racism. Um, but like you are, you are more fanatic than them because you have more to lose. Like you need to prove that you're not the things they think and say you are. Um, and so from the perspective of Cyros, uh, like, if you consider the changing hierarchies of Thingol's court, Thingol's own position is totally secure until he fucks shit up with the dwarves in a couple chapters, but we'll get there. Um, but in terms of the internal structure of Thingol's court, like, his position is secure. And if you think about what Thingol has been doing until very, very recently, it is shit-talking the humans and shit-talking the Noldor. He is explicitly, like, he's racist to Baron when Baron shows up. He's changed now, but he used to specifically see humans as lesser beings. So for somebody like Cyros, you are in a precarious position where you are not seen as one of the enlightened elves, but you can maybe be closer to them than you are to the people on the bottom of the hierarchy, which until very recently was human. So as soon as Turin, a human, shows up and is adopted as Thingol's son, the entire hierarchy has upended itself and you are no longer able to distinguish yourself from them in terms of, you know, being one of the good ones. Um, and so, yeah, you're probably going to be trying to put them, quote unquote, back in their place because that's the only way you can elevate your own place. Um, yeah, basically, we're pitting marginalized people against each other, and it's all. Ha <laughs> That's great reading. That's great building up into your full like season six. I love it. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the fraternal social contract, right? Um, or it works in similar ways. Um, it's the idea that you're like what Saros is doing is trying to yeah get an in with the people around him by creating an other, right? Or by utilizing an other. Um, the problem is that, like, it doesn't work very well for him um, because you just had Thingol the whole time. Like, the problem with an ideological shift over time in the court of Doriath is that it's all the same people, and it actually seems quite abrupt. Um, so you've had literal thousands of years of racist Doriath, um, and then the Hurin dies or is captured. Um, and Thingol hears about this, presumably from like the two soldiers who left Doria to go to this battle. Um, and is like, huh. Rablog and Beleg. I like humans now. This is a very abrupt shift. And like, turns like 19, which means that like, Doriath has been racist for thousands of years and has been not racist or less racist for like 15 years. That's not long enough. Um, 
but like it's it's nevertheless like Bingle's responsibility to be dealing with that. Um, but yeah, the way that it works is is by creating uh, creating an other in order to create like a social cohesion. But what's implied is that like what Cyrus is saying is entirely accepted by the people around him, except for Turin, um, because you don't really have any record of any other like um, response to it besides Turin's. So, like hypothetically, it could work, right? Hypothetically, if Turin had not been there and he'd just been kind of like sitting around shit talking humans in general for the fun of it, yeah, would have worked. Um, and it, there's like a a sense of complicity, right? Um, that's created by the fact that nobody else says anything about it. Um, that's like that makes Turin almost a viable target. Um, so that Turin acts the next day to do something about it, like, almost doesn't surprise you. And I think if you had a more complete account of perhaps who else had responded, it might be different. But the fact that nobody else responds in any way besides Turin himself um, sets it up to make Turin a viable target now for the entire court, hypothetically, if no one else is going to speak up to defend him. I agree with you. Um, also, like, just the next day, Turin, uh, like, reacts. He doesn't act. He's, like, not the one going to Saros and, like, beating him up. It's Saros, again, picking a fight with him and losing, because why would you pick a fight with Turin to begin with? Uh, but, um, you also see this like silent complicity when like the other come they see what happened and instead of being like like yes they kind of neutrally ask Turin to come back to many growth but like mabling is like you can seek pardon of the king it's like yeah we get it we get where you're coming from probably would have done the same thing. Like, you get someone is dead because of your action, but it's not a, like black and white, you killed him and there's nothing for to save you hide, I find. I don't know. Might just be me. And they also let him leave-ish. Well, I mean, like, I don't know, I feel they could have cut him if they really wanted him to go back to Minigrove. And they just don't. Probably say something about like, oh no! Such a tragedy, he was faster than us or something, but like... Was he? I don't know, not sure. You know, like there's this passive agreement that if it's okay to act like that, it's okay, what happened is okay. Um, cool, I'm gonna move the conversation onwards and I just realized that we're barreling straight towards another conversation on Cologne. Oh, what's that? <laughs> there were a number of gleeful bystanders yet no one the criminal. Thanks, Tristan. Um, 
Okay. So after this, Turin leaves. Um, and Thingol actually pardons him and is like, he, Thingol actually hears out the whole story and is like, no, I, I agree that he was wronged. Um, and Beleg is like, I will find him and tell him he was wronged. And uh, he does. But at that point, Turin, thinking that he was wronged by Thingol, has already named himself after it and joined some bandits. And he's like, not willing to leave his new life. Um, and so Beleg and Hurin, or sorry, Beleg and Turin have this conversation where they both want the other one to stay, but both of them are unwilling to leave. Turin for stubborn reasons, and Beleg because he has like a duty. Uh, so he goes, so Beleg goes back and asks leave of Thingol to devote his life to Turin, just, just saying. Um, and then gets a cursed sword in the worst decision Beleg makes in this entire story. Um, and some Lumbus. And uh, meanwhile, Turin makes a dwarf friend. I'm just going to call this section of the podcast Meme Discourse and invite anyone to share their thoughts on meme. And that whole, the whole meme subplot. So one thing that I picked up on this reading of um, the, whatever, Tale of Turin, Turnbar, um, that I don't think I've noticed before is that, Is that apparently the petty dwarves were driven out of the dwarf cities um, in the east? It's a throwaway line that comes up once, and it doesn't seem terribly important, but it is it is interesting to show what the petty dwarves specifically in contrast to the other dwarfs who we've seen making friends with the Noldor and being the best smiths and punching Glaurung until he gave up and doing awesome things. And then you see, like, these are, I don't want to say the dwarf rejects, but these are the dwarves that even the dwarves didn't want to hang out with. And it kind of shows in how terrible they are for the rest of the story. Also, they've had terrible things done to them, so it's kind of a mixed bag now, but um, yeah, there's a lot going on. Not knowing why they were driven out is super rough. Yeah. Are they just like chilling with dwarves? Yeah. No. Did they? We don't know. It's rough. The part when they talk about the dwarf, the chap some chapters before, I think they mention interdwarf wars, so it could just be that they lost a war and got kicked out. Because I think they mentioned that, like it was like a, also a very throwaway line about like how the dwarf are like fierce fighter, 
also among themselves and i don't remember where i could i could not find it like just at the top of my head but i'm pretty sure that the dwarves do fight among themselves or i did fight among themselves before and considering that i mean they were banished so it could also be that they were like assholes and like people were like no we don't want to hang out with you so yeah but it's also implied that they had, they, they were the equal to the dwarves in smithcraft and statues. It just diminished because of the exile. Interesting about this is like not only do we not know why they're banished, like we are told that they are disappearing, and that. Like, the reasons for that are just kind of not, like, they're ambiguous. They're not really, you don't know why they're fading, right? When you talk about, like, the fading of the elves in the future, like, you know why the elves are fading. Um, you're very aware of, like, the changing dynamics of the world. But here's what you know about the petty dwarves. They're banished. They come over, they come west. Um, the elves are a little curious. They're like, who are these little creatures? We are not curious enough to want to get to know them. We're going to kill them. So at first they kill them a bit, and then later they decide that they're actually people and leave them alone. Um, and they, the petty dwarves, um, think, consider the Noldor specifically to have stolen their lands and their homes. Um, and so you start to have some questions about Nargothrond, which Thingle had said was empty. Right? Um, because we know that the caves in Nargothrond were discovered by the petty dwarves, and that's and they did the delving. Um, and they've also been delving here in Amunruth. And then they were were living there, they were untroubled, and now they dwindled and died out. Reasons not given. Um, and Meme and his people are like the only ones left. So, so were they untroubled by the green el by the gray elves of the woods? Like, were they actually, or were they not untroubled? Perhaps, um, had they actually abandoned Nargothrond? Um, they don't seem to think that they had, considering that they think that the Noldor took their stuff. Um, Did they accidentally lose all of their wives? Their were unable to reproduce further. Yeah, maybe their wives just wandered off like the ant wives, who knows. <laughs> but the point is that, like, it's weird. It's weird that you don't know why they're all disappearing. Except for the fact that they appear to be in conflict with everyone around them. Um, sometimes because they're grumpy, but Possibly equally because people just kind of look at them and are like, they're a little ugly, we're going to kill them. Like, it's not specified. And here you see that, like, Meme's son has been attacked and is dead. Um, like, they're still, they're still kind of fighting for their survival at this last kind of tiny group of petty, petty dwarves. And you don't know much about that. I think it's weird that they're all dying and there's no explanation why. Just saying. 
certainly the other yeah. forms aren't yeah. fading. Yeah. There, okay, I think there are two major medieval um, contexts for the petty dwarves that I am aware of and that I can see. Uh, and this is very clearly something that was inspired by a lot of medieval texts. Like we talked about chivalric insults earlier um i also when i was reading this to tristan brought up the fact that uh Findulas's relationship to turin is modeled on um a like medieval courtly romance pattern where like woman sees man fight a tower and love like generally a princess to a mysterious new knight who is arriving like that that's a thing um so there's a lot of medieval literature in this and then there's a lot of uh, sagas and mythology, much of which was written down uh, during the medieval. So, okay. So the first meme uh, thing that I see is dwarves in Norse mythology. Um, like there's a there's a story about uh, Loki. I think yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Loki. Loki cheats dwarves out of a lot of gold first of all. Like, like that's a thing. Um, secondly, there's one where I think it's Loki who, or it, it's either Loki who does it, or who, but somebody catches and kills a fish and eats it. And then the fish turns out to be the shape-shifted of a dwarf um, who can turn into an otter. Or, so, or they kill an otter. At, at any rate, okay, the, the point is, somebody accidentally kills a dwarf's son and in order to make up for it, ends up having to fill an otter skin with gold and return it as a ransom. So that idea of like trading gold for someone's life. Um, but uh, oh, and also Norse dwarves in terms of like treasure and uh, there's some more Norse dwarf stuff coming with arc ends. But the thing is, while in Norse mythology, that, like, blood feud, gold, transactional murder sort of economy is fairly normal. It doesn't stand out as a dwarf thing, because the humans do it too. In Turin Turambar, it stands out, because... For, for two things. Humans and elves don't seem to have the same... Like, they have fixations on gems, yes, but not on gold specifically, and they don't have that, they don't seem to have that same sense of a gold ransom for someone's life. Um, and second, when Turin makes that offer, Meme looks at him and is like, wow, you speak like a dwarf, like a petty dwarf, or like one of my ancestors. I like you because of that. So that's established as a tradition. Which is what leads me to medieval literature resonance number two, and um, right, but it's the Jews. I uh, have been reading a lot about the history of anti medieval Europe for the class that I have to take, and even the uh, even even the like information about how the petty dwarves were chased out of their city 
where they were a minority population and then proceeded to wander into other people's lands where they were also hunted. Um, resonated a lot with what I was reading about the expulsion of England's Jewish population, which was only about like, God, like 300 people or something like that. It was, it was wild. Uh, in 1170, 12, whatever. So somewhere between 1100. Um, and uh, that's further compounded by other kind of anti-Semitic tropes that you see in medieval literature, including an emphasis on mysterious and somewhat unsavory traditions, um, an antagonism towards other quote-unquote races, um, a sense of always scheming and being likely to betray quote unquote races who live among them, and uh, oh, a patriarchal culture, and very significantly, the emphasis on gold. <laughs> like, for a really mainstream example of like gold and physical harm, uh, you just think of the Merchant of Venice. And that sense of like the Jews are vengeful and want to pound flesh, don't give them their gold. So that transactional value of the body as well as like gold, because it's not established as cultural currency across the board the way it is in the sagas, uh feels anti-Semitic here. That was fun. <laughs> That's my take. That's my hot take. Um, so I really like this parallels you're drawing there, particularly because it's not the first time we mentioned how like dwarves are very modeled after Semitic cultures. Uh, even in like the little bits we get in Lord of the Ring. Um, also I found the passage that tells of dwarf fighting among each other. Um, it's of. <clears throat> It's in the chapter of the cinders, and it says, uh, blah, 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 blah. it talks about the craft. Okay, yeah. A warlike race of old were all of the Nogrim, and they would fight fiercely against whomsoever agreed them, servants of Melkor, or Eldar, or Avari, or Wild Beast, or not seldom their own kin, dwarves of other mansions and lordships. So. Maybe the petty dwarf aggrieved another member, like Lord, like thing of dwarves, and they got kicked out brutally. Um, so I think, like, like how to say that? I think if you would look at the petty dwarf from a dwarf history, it would probably be. Yeah, like, so there was a battle between those two house of dwarves and this house lost and they didn't have any place to stay, so they just left. And we heard tidings of them dwindling in, in the west among the elves' land. Uh, but from an elvish perspective, who are like kind of prejudiced against everyone, uh, but also at dwarves, like they know the petty dwarves after they've been exposed 
and they know them when they like dwindling and like being less impressive than the other dwarves they know of and where they have like territory conflict with them in Nargothron or anywhere else uh, where they hunt them and slow, slew them it's like what um, so like again I think like there's a question about like what does the narrator tells us and what does they not tell us like are they projecting their own like perception and prejudice and and like misconception on those dwarves or are they like like did they do their research probably not because otherwise we would have less question about them um and how biased were they when they gathered information about those dwarves I don't know if that was really your point, but there's just something I want to bring up. No, I think that was a lot. Um, yeah, and the passage from earlier definitely like supports the idea that this was a like a war thing that happened that resulted in being driven out. That's probably the only hint that we anywhere about like um I guess to close us out, does anybody have any thoughts about any more thoughts about meme or about Beleg or about any of Turin's decisions so far? Um I'm going like talking about Turin's decision. Uh, I'm going to jump back a little bit on Seros and what happened after he dies, and like I find it weird, and at the same time not weird, that Turin doesn't trust Tangle to be fair to him, like it's. It's it's not weird because like it's shown in the text that he's proud and it's partially his pride and stubbornness that makes him like I don't want to be in chain, I will not be a prisoner, I will not ask for mercy, blah blah blah, or like or forgiveness or blah blah blah. Like uh but it's also like he, it's also a bit weird because he must know that Tingle will not like Tingle probably did not treat him like he treated Baron. Like the fifth, the the fifteen years, like maybe there was there hasn't been a big change in the court because it's like only fifteen years to elf, but for Turin it's like fifteen years, and he didn't even see Baron being like brought to Thingol like as a prisoner that or like tried to be brought as a prisoner that and humiliated and stuff when he was brought in with Dilthian. So like. Like, he probably has more experience of Thingol being positive towards him and unlikely to 
humiliate him than he has of, even if he had the story of Bad Baron, he knows the end of the stories too, that at the end, Baron came back a free man and left a free man and even married Reluthian. So like, so like, I, I don't understand why he doesn't like, except for the pride of like, I won't be a prisoner. I don't like, is this, I don't understand why it's not even tempered a little bit by the fact that his father figure ish or adopted father at least uh that i don't know you don't you really don't trust that he will be fair to you or and try to be understanding like he's just immediately dis disregard the potentiality of coming back and being forgiven i think another related question is so before he finds out he's cursed where does turin's complex come from. What? Sorry. Um, uh, I think another related question is before Turin finds out he's cursed, where does his persecution complex come from? Anyway, to you, Jordan, sorry. Um, slightly related point, I guess. Uh, one thing I had noticed was in comparison to the children of Current version, which I have much more cleanly in my head uh, than the Silmarillion version, I was noticing that like this this version doesn't uh, has barely anything about Turin himself uh, before he like gets to the elves about like what he's like as a character. Like we don't the 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 longer version has a big old thing about him living in Hithlum under um, you know foreign rule post battle. Um, right, and having to grow up as, like, the only, like, young man. <laughs> or, you know, he's a boy, but everyone else is elderly or a woman who didn't go to war, so he feels like the man of the house. This one, we don't have any of that, and the first thing we ever hear about him feeling is him feeling fear for his mother and sister, and therefore being like, I need to go to war, single, <laughs> give me arms so I may go to war. And then the second thing that he, we know he feels, uh, or it's like, and then there's, you know, the insult, the outcome of that. And then he's, I'm afraid that I will be punished for this in, in chains. And so the only things we really know about him is that he's a afraid and I guess has been taught by his mom to run away from imprisonment. Like, those are the two things we know about him at this point. Um, and so, I, I think it's kind of... It, we almost get a person... It's like persecution complex by lack of... By lack of detail. Right? This is a fearful... Um, and stubborn... <laughs> and possibly a, li a, a little... Uh, war-ready character, and those are, like, the three things you know in, like, the first three pages. Um. What you said? Yeah. Um, I, like, I like your point about, uh, from the Children of Curran, about him grow out his time in Hithlam as, like, the only young man in town, basically. Um... And I think to like to kind of answer Sophia's question, like where does his persecution complex 
come from, right? To reiterate my point, like uh, from earlier, one of the things about Turin um, that you know kind of build over the course of this is Turin makes a lot of spectacularly bad decisions. He really does, um, as well as being cursed. But he's not stupid. Like in terms of kind of ability to understand what people are doing, um, to even read a room. Like, he's not stupid. He knows what's going on politically around him. Um, and we're kind of presented with Cyrus as an isolated incident, but Turin's response to it, and Turin's response to um, kind of Thingol's invitation to come home, his response to his impression of what Thingol's justice will be, um, would indicate that Cyrus is not an isolated incident, actually. Um, and that is distinctly possible, and this again relates to that really abrupt shift in what Thingol's hypothetical position on humans is, um, and the hypothetical shift in his court that doesn't appear to have happened, doesn't appear to have actually occurred. Um, so it's, it's distinctly possible that he gets his persecution complex because no one in Thingol's court likes him. Um, uh, and that, like, he does have had that as a problem in his life, that that's been an issue, that he's aware by virtue of what he's been told, by virtue of having grown up in Thingol's court, of the kind of justice that Thingol dispenses, um, and doesn't trust his abrupt, sh his abrupt shift in heart that happened 15 years ago, um, which is a reasonable thing not to trust when you consider Thingol's history and a history that Turin would almost certainly have been aware of, right? Just because Thingol's been nice to him so far, you have a far longer history of um, not liking humans and taking pretty extreme measures when you don't like someone um, or when someone you're you're perceived to have hurt somebody that is Thingol's person, right? Uh, like Thingol's response to the Noldor for killing somebody who was his family um, is extreme, right? So it makes sense. It makes sense to me based on what we're told uh, and what we know and the, how smart we know Turin is that you wouldn't trust Thingol. Um, to be providing a certain, the, the kind of justice that would favor uh, Turin. That's where I think it comes from. I think he trusts Thingol. He just doesn't trust the pressure he's going to receive. In the fact that you know how, like, he knows everyone but maybe but Thingol and Million and maybe Galadriel how are heavily prejudiced against humans. And I'm not even sure why I included Galadriel because we have no proof of her at this point. Um, I just want to think she's cool. Uh, <laughs> um, so it's like, even if he comes back and Thingol wants to forgive him publicly, how precarious Thingol's position is going to become if he does? How, how style it is going to become for Thingol? Also, to jump up with Jordan's um, comment, 
I really like the idea that uh, Turin, not only because of his mother, like mostly because of his mother, because he's the one with, but also because what he maybe have heard about his father has an AoE reaction of like rather dead than prisoner. Because it makes sense as a son of Herin to not want to become a prisoner, even if it's not a prisoner of Morgoth, you don't want to become a prisoner. It's a very good example of don't become a prisoner. Um, you know, um, and I, I like, and with those two things in view, I don't think it's a sense of persecution that makes him live here. It might just be a sense of, I don't know, a mix of like stubbornly refusing to approach whatever resemble prison or like shackles or like restriction on his freedom. It can also be like, as you said, like reading the room and being like, well, like the political situation is going to be very unstable if I come back. and. Thingol forgives me, or if he doesn't forgive me, actually, because like, then I will be the human that proves that yeah, you can't trust humans, they just kill elves and they're disgusting. Um, so now that we've talked about it, I understand a bit better why he would not come back. It still sounds a little bit like, in the text, I don't know, it still sounds a little bit like I won't say Tom for Tantrum, but like, no, I will not come back. Um, but that's maybe just my reading. And... He is very young. Um, but I mean, 20. I think there's enough clues. I guess one thing I had, one thing I had, I hadn't mentioned in my whole like you know fearful stuff. Like I don't, I don't know that anyone knows that Hearn is captured. To, I guess, poke a tiny hole. In that comment, uh, but, I, I mean, I guess, the other thing we know of like Hearn or Turin, sorry, before coming to Doriath is we know that his mom was considered a witch. Basically, and, uh, was more or less, like. So, so we de we definitely know like of a like a personal persecution against his family, and I would you know you would have to assume probably from to him as well as his you know, the same way as his mom, and also the fact that yes, the uh, Thingol's position has changed on human on humans. It seems um, you know I mean good for him for changing, but also like the knowledge that you are the first exception to a pre-established rule might definitely r relate to uh, somebody being like oh uh, all the goodwill has now been like thrown away after one bad action because there is no precedent for like mercy in a case like this right especially if the court especially if the court has not moved on uh with uh with him right if like Beleg is, is like one of the few friends and the rest of like his advisors are either you know don't care or are at least don't care enough when like the really racist one 
starts speaking. Bolt. Uh, like that's yeah. I, I could definitely see uh, somebody who is prone to a, a little bit of paranoia um, and pride being like, uh, "Well, that's my shot. Just gone now. So better, you know, make make my own way." Yeah, that makes sense. Also, it just occurred to me that whether or not we know, like, people at the time know what happened to Herin, like, he saw his mother being virtually prisoner. Like, yes, she was left alone, but she was very much left alone. She was like, she had no power, no freedom. Like, she's virtually a prisoner, just not officially one. Like... Prisoner by neglect. Yeah. And purposeful neglect. And by lack of power, by lack of agency. Like, people are afraid of her, but as soon as they're not afraid of her, she's done for. Like, that's basically her only defense. And, like, she does the best she can in her situation, but, like, she can't get the Easterling out of Islam. She can't, uh, go get her husband she can't she 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 can't herself pr protect her son she feels that she has to send him to the elf like it's a it's a situation of powerlessness that Turin witnessed for at least let's see at least three years because he was eight when he left and I, I don't know I feel like he was like five when her in died like disappeared like or like when the battle happened i don't know um but yeah so like even if he doesn't know what happened to his father like what he so happened to his mother make probably like make an impression strong enough to not want to be like uh restrained in his agency Well, I think perhaps to wrap up today, I can give you a, the bad reason why Turin runs away. It's uh, because that's how it happens in the Kalevala. Um, so I kind of wanted to read you guys... Uh, the summary that I wrote up ages ago, back when I was uh, doing work on this, um, of the Lervo cycle from the Kalevala and of Tolkien's Lervo story. <laughs> I'm not going to read my whole summary, but I'm just going to read the parts that are relevant to like what has happened so far in Turin Turumbar. Um, so, okay, in, in the Kalevala, the Kulervo cycle is... Uh, songs or poems, 31 to 36 of the Kalevala. It tells the story of a feud between two brothers, Kalervo and Untamo, that starts with Untamo fishing in Kalervo's waters and escalates and Untamo kills Kalervo and slaughters most of his household. One pregnant girl is left alive and taken to be a servant in Untamo's household. She has a son and names him Kulervo, which probably comes from the Finnish word or gold, 
Gulenvo has a typical epic hero childhood. He grows and learns to talk absurdly young, um, but and Untamo thinks he's the second coming of Kalervo. He tries to kill him, but Kulervo just die. So Untamo tries to put Kulervo to work as a slave, but Kulervo's temper and strength make him really bad at everything, like he just breaks stuff. So Untamo finally sells Kulervo to Ilmarinen the Smith as a, as a slave. At this point in the narrative, Kulervo starts to be referred to as son. He wasn't previously. It's real messy. Uh, so Kulervo works for Ilmarinen as a cow herd, but one day Ilmarinen's wife, for no apparent reason other than wickedness, sends Gulervo out with a loaf of bread that she has baked stones into. Gulervo breaks his knife on the stones, a knife that we are here informed apparently came from another Gulervo. So Gulervo follows a talking raven's advice and gets revenge by letting the cows die, replacing them with wolves and bears magically turned into cows. He drives the herd back, and when Ilmarinen's wife goes to milk them, the wolves and bears maul her and she dies. Uh, they, she dies cursing him and he curses her back. It's just like an exchange of insults. Gulervo then leaves before Ilmarinen can catch him. Um, so then Tolkien's version of these events. In Tolkien's uh, The Story of Gulervo, tells the story of a feud between two brothers, Galervo and Untamo, that starts with Untamo fishing in Galervo's waters and escalates and kills Galervo and slaughters most of his household. Only Galervo's pregnant wife and her two children are left alive and taken to, uh, and taken to be servants in Untamo's household. Galervo's wife then gives birth to twins. She names her son Kulervo, which Tolkien says means wrath, and her daughter Vanona, which Tolkien says means weeping. Uh, the children are neglected by their mother because she never her husband's death. Vanona grows unnaturally quickly and takes to wandering the forest alone. Kulervo grows unnaturally quickly, and when he asks his mother why she's sad all of his mother tells him the death and gives him Kulervo's knife. Gulervo vows revenge, and Untamo thinks Gulervo is the second coming of Gulervo, so he plots to kill him. But before that plot comes together, Gulervo is able to spend some time wandering companionably in the woods with his sister, and also with Musti, their parents' magical dog. Uh, when Untamo eventually tries to kill Gulervo, it's the dog's magic that saves him, because the dog is allowed to work magic three times. Uh, so Untamo tries to put Kulervo to work as a slave, but Kulervo's strength and bad temper make him bad at everything, he just breaks stuff. So Untamo threatens to sell Kulervo. Kulervo's family members keep asking him, like, oh, if you go, we, what we do, and what will we do? And Kulervo, in a temper, answers that they can go die for all he cares. And finally, Untamo sells Kulervo to Ilmarinen the smith. Kulervo argues with each of his family members, who keeps they will not weep for him except for his mother who will then Kulervo leaves and the dog follows for a while the smith doesn't know what to do with Kulervo and lets him wander around the wilds where Kulervo keeps getting angrier and angrier despite the fact that he makes friends with bears and wolves but eventually Ilmarinen's wife asks Kulervo to become a manservant but then discovers that she hates having him around so she sends him out as a cow herd and bakes a flint into his loaf of bread thinking Kulervo will break his teeth but instead, Kulervo breaks his beloved knife. So then Kulervo gets revenge by letting the cows die and magically turning his wolf and bear friends into cows. He drives the herd back, and when Ilmarinen's wife goes 
the wolves and bears maul her and she dies. But she curses him with her dying breath, saying, Thy end shall be more awful and a tale to men forever of a fate of woe and horror. And then Gulervo leaves before the smith can catch him. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to read from Tolkien's Gulervo about the kid's birth. Um, and so about Gulervo and the twin sister's birth, he wrote, Of great strength was the one, and of great fairness the other, even at birth. But their mother's heart was dead within, nor did she wreck aught of their goodliness, nor did it gladden her grief or do better than recall the old days in their homestead of the smooth river and the fish waters of the reeds. And she thought of the dead Kulervo, their father, and she named the boy Kulervo, or Wrath, and his daughter, Vanona, or Weeping. Wow, I didn't catch any parallels with Karen's kid. I like how the dog is also just Huan from the other story. Like, oh, you can do this cool thing, but only three times, and he's gonna follow you around. It's great. It's great. This is the very first iteration I can tell. I mean, what's the adage? Uh, uh, great artists steal? Yeah. Tol or reuse Tolkien their had own material. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good artists borrow, great artists steal. <laughs> Tolkien hashtag great artist. Yes. But yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that I think is neat. Like the mom doesn't really get the mom is treated really differently in the Kalevala as like you can already see her developing into her in Tolkien's version and like giving her a personality and depression. Um, but yeah, I think some of it is still really relevant, like the fact that uh, you can argue that Turin was initially named Wrath, which seems pretty appropriate. Uh, Turin's name, incidentally, uh, means, um, in Quenya, it just means Lord. Like, it's just from, like, Tur, meaning Lord. Uh, but in Sindarin, it's Tur, meaning, like, Mastery. Or, like, lordliness? Hang on, I pulled this up. Uh, and, um, oh, tour meaning mastery or victory, and ind meaning inner thought, heart, mind. So in Quenya, it's just lord, but in Cinderin, it's victorious heart. Uh, whereas Purin is like fiery heart. Yeah. Uh, Morwen is dark maiden. I can understand where like Morwen was trying to get uh, by giving, naming her son Turin. Um, it's kind of ironic considering how many times he fails, but. He's trying, like, he has a victorious hurt in that he <laughs> wants to win. 
um, the rest of the world apparently doesn't want him to, so he fails constantly, but he, he <laughs> has the desire to. That's uh, not lacking, for sure. Um, yeah. If anything, he we know he is mastered by his emotions constantly. That's true. You could interpret that backwards, too. and doesn't care that much about the order of words. So you could interpret it as, like, mastered by heart rather than master over, or, like, master over one's heart. Yeah, anyway, I should let y'all go. <laughs>